0: Hello, this is Clark Carr and Clark Reads Books. Thank you for letting me read to you again from my book, Tom Fool Traveler. Here is chapter 13, Comings and Goings, the last chapter. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. Airports again. In travel, airports first, airports last. Let's just mix metaphors, centuries, and languages. Shakespeare's classic image is a good enough analogy to comprehend the hustle and histrionics of the modern international airport. As much as we think we may have learned about travel, an hour or three at a foreign airport can always teach us more. Airports serve as well to introduce us to new countries or new cities, Which, I guess, is a sad thing, considering how most of us actually feel about airports. If we felt the same way about our other entrances and exits, our mothers giving birth, or our children burying us, well, maybe we do feel the same. Coming in and going out is something we want to get over so that we can get on with what's important in between and afterwards. But then everything is in between, isn't it? And there is no afterwards, because you're always there, wherever afterwards is. Phew. Enough half-baked philosophy. We were discussing airports. If you have far to travel, you have to go through a lot of them. In older times, traveling by ship was much the same thing, and just as interesting, if not more, with different classes of passenger. But there we go again. There are classes of passenger in airports, too. I promise now I'll do my best to stick to this century and this planet. Airports. I was in Lagos, Nigeria. It is a huge city on Africa's west coast. What I was going to learn about the city, its airport, would have to school me in, as I could only stay overnight and then had to fly inland to Abuja, Nigeria's capital, for a conference. Georges and I had arrived at the international airport, but would now be leaving Lagos from its smaller, domestic terminal. At a decent hour in the morning, we were being accompanied to the airport by a kindly elderly Nigerian woman named Ebubechi. In the taxi, George asked Mrs. Ebubechi what her name meant. Ebubechi, she answered, positioning her purse even more firmly exactly in the center of her capacious lap. I looked at George not needing to ask any more questions. George frowned. It was going to be difficult to make nice talk. She had a last name too, but George and I never learned to pronounce it correctly with its swallowed M's and final explosive Ah. Oh, we just called her Dr. ebubechi I thought, given her terseness and being a medical doctor, Dr. ebubechi might have had more important things to do. I expected she had probably drawn the short straw, having to be the one to get us to the airport and off to Abuja. I had suggested that we could just take a taxi and get ourselves onto our flight. Most everyone did speak English, after all. "'Don't you even consider it,' our Lagos friends immediately said. I thought they were just being polite. More of my naivete. "'You will allow me to take charge when we arrive at the airport.' our lady doctor said to us in the taxi, while we were on the way. Thank you, really, I said, but you don't need to hold our hands. George and I are well-traveled. I will take charge when we get there, she repeated. Although she accompanied that with a smile, it was a stern smile. She reminded me of my third-grade teacher, Mrs. Grudge, honest to God one of the great real names in the annals of teaching. Our taxi pulled up to the international terminal of Murtala Muhammad Airport, named after a former military head of state. The building looked big and efficient. I said the domestic terminal, snapped Ebu to the driver. Domestic! She slapped him on the shoulder. He cringed a little and drove us around to the smaller, older terminal. The security situation is much better now. Ebubechi told us. After our last president's election, airport police have adopted a shoot on site policy for anyone found, you know, on runways, taxiways. There are fewer robberies now. Wow, I thought, fewer. One of the advantages of democracy, I offered. George and I looked at each other trying to work out how you rob an airplane on the runway. There are few enough advantages to our democracy. Security may be one, she added. At the domestic curb, we got out. Porters gathered round. Dr. Ebuchi turned to us. Take charge of your own suitcases, she ordered. They have rollers. We trundled through the crowd to the rather smallish entrance to departure's check-in. We opened the door. And immediately... I understood why Ebu Becci had come with us. There were at most two or three ticket windows on the far side of the room serving apparently all the airlines going anywhere inside Nigeria. That was one thing, but the more pressing matter was that the room was packed wall-to-wall with people. Stacked would be a better term. One would have had trouble wedging in a toothpick. Maybe 200 people, I didn't want to count. What was facing us was a room full, shoulder to shoulder, with large men. And they were all to a person, angry, pushing, shoving. We stood out like museum albinos. I thought we were rather skinny to boot. I was about to suggest that George go in front when Dr. Ebubechi put her hand on my shoulder and pulled me back. I turned. That was one scary face she had on. I distinctly remember fumes coming out of her nostrils. Ebu Becci stepped quietly in front of us. Then she raised her purse above her head like Moses' stone tablets. Wham! She brought the purse of doom down on somebody directly in front of us. Whack! She walloped another. Make room! She bellowed. Give way! Thwack! Bam! She continued to belabor the poor male souls in front of us. They automatically began to submit and started creating space. These are very important American guests, she bellowed. Show some respect. And the seas parted, and the fishes along with them. I was impressed. If George and I had tried to muscle our way through, one, we wouldn't have made it an inch, two, God knows what kind of justice would have been visited upon our lily-livered selves by the mob in the room. But a grandmother in wrath is a force to be reckoned with. All these people had a mother or a grandmother. All had been disciplined to within an inch of hellfire by a woman who wouldn't put up with their nonsense. And one such had now entered the room. They made way. Lots of way. How they squeezed together even tighter to provide us space, I don't know. But Dr. Ebebechi clove a path through, and we followed. Surprisingly, the ticketing itself went smoothly. I had suspected more trouble because not only were there only three ticket windows, but the ticket counters were barriered, ceilinged counter with thick steel bars. There were only little windows to put your hand in and out. Nevertheless, we got our boarding passes— The suitcases had to go through another jail-barred opening off to one side. Dr. Ebebechi glowered a moment at those standing near us, and they stepped aside. We crammed our baggage through, just in time for the flight. We only had a moment to thank the wonderful doctor, who transformed suddenly into a picture of every mother everywhere, grinning wide and embracing us, telling us to come back, please, soon, We couldn't hear more in the hubbub of the crowd and were pushed out onto the tarmac. I can't remember if the plane was a prop-driven DC-3 or a small two-engine jet, but we walked out and up the stairs into the plane. The plane was soon almost full. They closed the door and the plane started to pull off onto the taxiway. Then suddenly the plane jerked to a stop. George and I looked at each other. A stick-up? Bandits? The stewardesses unlatched the front cabin door and swung it open. I looked outside and saw two men aggressively pushing the rolling stair ramp out towards the plane. Following them was a man puffing and lugging his suitcase. Once the stairs connected with a fuselage, he ran up and on board. Boy, this guy must be important, I said to George. Some people here can stop a plane even out on the taxiway. The new passenger seated himself without fanfare or fuss. They closed up the hatch and the plane started forward again, but only for a few seconds. It stopped again. The hatch opened, ramp rolled up, another man with suitcase ran up into the plane. This happened a third time before we finally got down to the end of the runway to take off. Like I said, an airport can tell you a lot about a country or a city. I'm not exactly sure what it told us here, but it was good. There is something wonderful about a place where a grandma can still whip rowdy boys into good manners and where an airline like a stagecoach can always stop to let a couple more travelers clamber on. Another airport, back in Pakistan, but this time alone. Before the end of this unique airport experience, I said to myself, perhaps as many others have done, if I get through this, I will never complain about an airport again. And I haven't. I may make fun of airports as well as I do of myself, but I don't complain while I'm at the airport. A man of my word. Again, I was in Karachi, this time during the Hajj, the week-long space in the last lunar month of the Islamic calendar, during which Muslim pilgrims worldwide flock to Mecca. One of the five pillars of Islam, the Hajj is a holy duty that Muslims perform, to visit and worship at Mecca at least once during their lifetime. For poorer people, raising the funds to do this journey may have taken years. It's not a small matter. The gathering in Mecca is claimed to be the largest public meeting in the world. One hell of a lot of people from all walks of life simply must get there and then get back. Home. It is not particularly wise for a Yankee sort of do good professor wanting to go someplace else to insert himself in the middle of this highly religious stream of humanity. Hence, of course, there I was and not having been warned. Like that it had never even been mentioned to me that this was the Hajj. I don't know what is the Urdu word for fool, idiot, but I know what it feels like to be one. I'd been being hosted by several kind Pakistanis for two weeks. We were still smiling, but if not tired of each other, we were all ready to go to our various homes and be rid of language, food, and other challenges. They asked if I would be all right, and I assured them yes, so they dropped me off at the curb of the international airport. I hauled my two large roller suitcases inside, into the tail end of the Hajj pilgrimage with Several hundred also-weary people returning from Mecca to their homes via Karachi and my same flight via Dubai. I was going to London. The rest were going wherever in the world. At first, I just marveled at how differently dressed all these people were. There were women in hijab with scarves and veils or in full purdah. It was the first time I had seen this as Pakistani women do not practice a strict Muslim dress code. I had seen photos, of course, but looking at women, wandering through a crowd entirely covered in cloth, felt a little spooky to my Western eyes. Some of the veiled women carefully revealed just eyes, fingertips, and toes. It is a testament to female creativity, how much sparkle and pizzazz, and would you look at this, that a woman can put into fingernails and toe polish. And, of course... Eye makeup was virtually invented by Asian or Middle Eastern women. On some, it was stunningly attractive. It reminded me of my mother telling me the effect her mother and aunts used to create just by pulling up the hem of their skirts to show some ankle. Less is more. The men were in myriad colors of the shalwar kameez, light cloth trousers under a shirt tunic that comes to below the knees, also called the kurta. Variations included jeans instead of loose trousers, and kurtas in fancy and pleated fabric. Shoes were mostly sandals, but varied from wild-colored athletic to elegant high heels in the women. What also made this crowd different, other than their many shades of skin and clothes, were the packages. Besides luggage, many had huge bundles of stuff, plastic wrapped into cubes three and four feet on the side. I could see every variety of thing packed in there. Electronics, equipment, clothes, kitchen appliances, knick-knacks, to my eye. And then there were the five-gallon plastic jugs of water. I couldn't help myself. What are the water jugs about? I asked someone near me who looked like he could speak English. Holy water, he said. They are returning from Mecca with special blessed water. That's when I realized the inconvenient moment I had chosen to fly home. Holy water from Mecca. Other holy or once-in-a-lifetime stuff from Saudi Arabia bought to be taken home. Rolled-up rugs, the works, and a zillion people. If this were the ark, there would damn sure have been camels and hippos. Nevertheless, despite a few frayed nerves and some irritated voices in different languages, in relatively short order, we all got ourselves and our things checked in and into our 747. All well and good. Very efficient, I thought. As soon as I was buckled in, I settled down to rest. It was going to be a long trip, starting out at almost midnight. Except we didn't start. The plane was packed every seat as far as I could tell. And there we sat. After one hour, a voice came on and told us that there was a problem with one of the computers. It would be a little longer. Another hour. No update. A third hour. The plane began to itch and bubble with frustration. What could we say in complaint? This was our way home. The plane has to operate, doesn't it? We all kept our mouths shut and hoped for the best. Boeing 747s are like flying battleships anyway. They're clearly built to last. At 3 a.m., there was an announcement which set a record in terseness. All passengers will deplane. Tonight's flight is cancelled. No one bothered to waste words as to why or what would now happen. Most of us had fallen asleep or almost. We grabbed our stuff down from the overheads and shuffled grumpily out of the plane. The moment I stepped out into the Karachi terminal again, I saw that this was going to be different. I could understand the terminal being nearly pitch dark. It was 3 a.m. But there in front of us were two long lines of armed soldiers with a space between them, through which we were clearly to walk to the far stairs and down to the lower lobby. I was tired, but the soldiers did the trick. I wasn't asking anybody anything. No protests, no what's going on. All the soldiers had rifles for crying out loud. Whatever they knew that I didn't, I didn't want to find out. Lambs don't get led to the slaughter out of 747s, I assured myself. Downstairs it became clearer. The line of soldiers snaked halfway down into the lower lobby and then ended, after which we were on our own way down at the far corner of this international airport lobby were exactly two lighted ticket booths. There were two travel attendants to handle the re-ticketing of nearly 400 exhausted, hungry, soon-to-be very angry people. Two. At what? 4 a.m. now? This is what the soldiers were for, I figured, for the riot that was about to develop. But, of course, as the hours drew on and the slow-burning fuse approached the powder keg, all the soldiers conveniently disappeared. The concept of the line, of standing politely in line, one behind the other, may be a Western or European custom. Now that I think of it, where did we learn not to club one another in our haste to get ahead of the ape in front of us? This crowd had missed that class. Everyone pushed and shoved, those words carefully and accurately selected, towards the two attendants. There was heaving and elbowing. The high heels mentioned earlier were discovered to be weapons of war on bare sandaled feet. I wouldn't say voices were raised. I would say that soon one couldn't hear who was saying what, because everyone was shouting. Surely the pilot or someone, for goodness sake, must have called airline administrators or somebody to get more people here to handle this fiasco? As the minutes clocked on and the frustration mounted to anger, to fury, to outraged indignation, I concluded that, no, no one had called the airline administrators. Or maybe they were too chicken to come face this. It was getting out of hand, no doubt about it. I was a pea bumped around in a boiling pot, stirred around but not going anywhere. Rather quickly I decided that if I were not to lose some teeth, I had better let the more muzzled and agitated ones get to the front first. Not just the airline administration or chicken. Me too. Then it escalated into surreal. The hall lights, which had been off or dimmed, came suddenly brightly on full. Large side doors opened, and a massive dump truck backed into the airport lobby, chugging diesel fumes. It then dumped hundreds of our bags and the big Mecca cube packages onto the floor. It drove out, and another came in and added to the pile, which now became a small mountain. Somewhere between 600 and 800 bags and packages in a 12 to 15 foot tall mound spread throughout the central lobby. Again, no one had the courage, or bullhorns, to make an announcement about it. We not only were to get our tickets, we were also to find and retrieve our luggage Out of that mess. The pot came to a full boil. People were now punching one another. People were climbing over the counter to stand behind the poor, terrorized, but still typing airline attendants. Two people were standing on top of the counter. I'm not sure what advantage that got them, but other than a standpoint to dropkick our heads through the goalposts of exasperation. Something had to be done. I don't mean about everything. I just recognized I had to do something, or I really didn't know what the hell would happen. I was pooped for sure, and now feeling grimy and without oxygen, but the idea of crawling to a far corner to curl up and sleep like a pariah dog was one step too far down. I had to do something. I thought, I'm going to London via Dubai. There must be other people going to London via Dubai. So I hollered, Who else is going to London? "'VIA DUBAI,' and I waved my tickets above my head. "'LONDON, VIA DUBAI, OVER HERE. "'Lord, have mercy on us poor sinners,' but it worked. "'More than a dozen people knocked and propelled themselves over to me. "'I could see more zeroing in. "'Okay,' I thought. "'Good. "'Anyone speak English?' "'A bunch did.' "'I looked around. "'Several of these were fairly large guys. "'Okay. "'Everyone give me your tickets to London.' You four guys, you form a wedge and push your way through to the ticket counter. I will be right behind you. I will get exchange tickets for all of us at one time. This was a workable solution. Hell, it was a solution, and that was better than nothing. My rugby squad formed itself up and happily plowed into the crowd with me tucked in, safely behind, carrying the ball. With their arms linked and courage and companionship, they made it through After one attendant finished with someone, they bulldozed the space clear and made room for me. Miraculously, it went smoothly after that. My attendant was gutsy and competent and even had an unexpected sense of humor. I asked what he thought of this, and he spread his arms wide to include the room, smiled at me, and said, We are an excitable people. My man thought my grouping together destinations was a clever idea and waved the bunched tickets together up above him, Others in the crowd behind me began to do the same. I saw tickets being waved and little groupings of different final destinations forming up. I got our replacement tickets. I was about to turn round when I remembered. What about our lodgings tonight, I asked, hoping there was a plan. There was. It was simple. You are all, everyone, going to the same hotel. They will take care of you. Are you sure about that, I asked, trying to play tough. Look at that he said, gesturing to the still-turbulent, frothing crowd behind me. The hotel had better take care of you. He had a point. And the suitcases, I asked, now that everything was going swimmingly. That is up to you. I am sorry. Nothing to be sorry about. Thank you, I said. Thank you. I turned, and my squad was still there. They tugboated back through to the edge of the crowd. I handed out the dozen-plus tickets to London. Civilization was returning to Pakistan. We went over to the milling luggage pool and somehow found and handed around luggage to one another. By maybe 5 a.m. we found ourselves outside, and praise all things great and good, there were buses there. The airport itself, too, was coming back to life for the next day's run. I didn't care. I just wanted to get to the hotel. I did. I think we all did. At least my bus was full. I was given a room, took a shower, which solves all things dark and serious, slept and next day was bussed back to the airport, onward to Dubai and London and finally home. I never did find out why the airline never sent more attendants or what the soldiers were about. Maybe they knew more about their citizens than I did. Well, now I know them better. They're not all bad. Some of them can form up a good offensive squad and gain some yards. You can count on them in a crunch. And I don't complain at airports anymore. At least, not out loud. Thank you again for listening. Tomfool Traveler is available in print and electronically via Amazon. I wrote it under the pen name C.C. Nixdorf. If you liked this, come back to my podcast, Clark Reads Books, for my reading of my novel, The Last Wolves of Mars. No kidding. It's a great story. What did happen to the last wolves on Mars?